Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you're tuning in. And can you believe those leadership is five years old? I cannot believe it. This show has been so transformational for my life. It's one of my favorite things that I do, and I'm so happy to bring these conversations to you. Great guest today, Chris Fussell. He's a partner at McChrystal Group, where he heads up the McChrystal Group Leadership Institute. He's an author, co-author of the 2015 New York Times bestseller, Team of Teams, that he wrote with General McChrystal. And um, he wrote a book himself in 2017, One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. So we talk about that here on the show. Chris was commissioned a naval officer in 1997. He spent the next 15 years as a U.S. Navy SEAL, leading SEAL elements in combat zones around the globe from war-torn Kosovo to counterterrorism operations in Iraq and Afghanistan to highly specialized efforts in troubled areas of the Arabian Peninsula and North Africa. He experienced and led... Through the modern evolution of the U.S. military special operations community, uh, first on SEAL t- Team 2 and then 8, and then in the Naval Special Warfare Development Club. It was so fun to talk to him. Of course, I love talking with SEALs, uh, former military members. Um, this one uh, doesn't disappoint. If you listen to my previous shows, uh, we really get uh, technical and um, to the meat of what uh, real leadership is and how it can apply to everyday life. And uh, this is one of my favorite conversations. So I'm so excited to have Chris on the show. Again, thank you for being a fan of the show. It's hard to believe it's been five years. Um, again, this show has been transformational to me and my family, and I appreciate all of you that listen to the show and reach out to me and let me know where you're at in your leadership journey. Uh, it means the world to me, and I can't thank you enough for the support for this show. Uh, if you're brand new, thank you. If you've been with me for five years, thank you so much. I appreciate every single one of you. Hey, check out my Legacy Leader Blueprint course. It's going like gangbusters. I am just signed my 15th client, taking him through my Legacy Leader Blueprint course. It's perfect for organizations who are struggling to find the time and the budget to do effective leadership training. At $349 a seat, it doesn't break the bank. And with my videos, you can watch at your leisure, and then in between each module, four times, I'll meet with you personally, you and your team, and we'll talk about the videos and help it and how it applies to you and your business. So check it out at dosaleadership.com and click on the Legacy Leader Blueprint menu item, and you can learn more there. And I hope to see you and your team in the next course. All right, here he is, Chris Fussell, here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Chris, what an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it too. You know, we we tried this, both of our schedules were just chaotic over the summer. And uh, I'm finally glad as we're closing out 2017 to finally get you on the show. I have so much to, to to ask you and to talk to you about. You know, I've people have heard me talk on the show how important um, the Marine Corps has been to my leadership philosophy. I would imagine, obviously, your time and experience as a Navy SEAL and all the combat operations certainly has uh, cemented your leadership philosophy today. Is that a, is that true? It is, and it's one of those things. Probably like yourself. Um, Sometimes people say, well, what, what, what did you learn in the, in the SEAL teams about leadership, et cetera? And you just can't separate it. You know, right, it's, it's, right. um, 
it's just who you are, right? You're brought up in that. Most of us join the military at a, a relatively young age or open to growth and influence, et cetera. And then it just intuitively, it just becomes who you are in that. So separating the lessons from the community is really difficult. It's just ingrained in your DNA at a certain point. Yeah, it becomes, uh, I know exactly what you mean. You mean, And that's why I think my frustration, my 16 years in a corporate arena is trying to get people to understand that, you know, the culture, I mean, you already have a culture, whether you like it or not, but how you have that automatic culture where um, it's decentralized and the decision making is pushed to the lowest level. To me, it seemed like common sense, but but I've been bucking it for 16, 17 years. Why is it so difficult, do you think, um, in the corporate arena? Um, it's, a, it's a great question. Well, I think one of the unique advantages that that military has is and just through the default of the structure, um, you know, the old adage from the Marine Corps, there's t- if there's two Marines in a room, one's, one's in charge and, and accountable, right? So <laughs> right, from, right. from day one, your most junior level, I mean, I uh, was commissioned through officer candidate school right out of college. Um, I had been a team captain on a wrestling team, and that was sort of the extent of my leadership. Right. And then you're in charge of four people, and then eight people, and then you're going through SEAL training, and you're in charge of a boat crew, and then you're in charge of, you know, just throughout your career, you are accountable to getting something done with others. And I think you don't, at that age, at 23, 24 years old, I, I, I couldn't have framed it in any sort of uh, theory of the case around leadership. It was just what you were expected to do. And the feedback loop was pretty quick. Uh, if you weren't successful in training, if you weren't on, if your squad was always late, you know, all these sort of immediate feedback things that, that really did matter. Um, that's a, that's a unique advantage. So I, uh, you know, I often tell people in the, in the corporate arena, um, it, the, a general officer that takes over thousands of troops, tens of thousands of troops, et cetera. Um, it's a, uh, it's an intense moment, but they're often not daunted by it because before that they were in charge of. 30,000. Unfortunately, that they were in charge of 6,000. And, you know, they've just had the advantage of always being in a leadership position. And, you know, a lot of time in the, in the corporate environment, there's too much emphasis. And this is no one's fault. It's just the way structures have been yeah, built yeah, historically. Right, right. Their, their excellence is what really matters. Am I a good salesperson? Am I a good engineer? Am I a good X? And then suddenly, mid-career, you're in charge of 400 other engineers or you're in charge of the West Coast sales. That's right. a big leap. That is. That's a great perspective too. You're absolutely right. We put so much emphasis on the talent or what, you know, something that something that got us to the table was we were good at some technical or tactical expert, you know, element of our job, right? And I think when we get that leadership role, um, we think, well, that's what got us to the game. I'm just going to continue to do that, but it's a whole different skill set. And you're absolutely right. It's like, and I never looked at it in that way because from day one, you're just ingrained in this culture of leadership and you're taught to take care of others. It's not about you. Um, you know, if, if private Schmuckatelli doesn't bring his sleeping bag to the field, I'm the one that goes without, not him, you know, and it just becomes ingrained from day one. And you're right. It's this emphasis on being the best salesperson, the best accountant, the best pilot, whatever it is. And just because you're a great pilot doesn't mean you're going to be a good chief pilot. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. You know, and it's also too, looking and I, and I, and I've kind of bad mouthed the kind of the industrial revolution and the Frederick Wenzel Taylor's link of, or, or way of scientific management theory, but it's almost, it was actually kind of a necessary, um, 
uh, progression for our economy. But I think that that creation of the kind of industrial revolution, creation of silos, all that stuff is still with us. And I think that's where, where we butt heads with it, right? I mean, I think that's that's what I've noticed anyway when I've worked in the in the civilian community. It's like I'm constantly trying to break silos down, but those silos were kind of necessary 120 years ago. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's a, um, I mean, I have a, I have a lot more sympathy after having written two books now in the, in that space, sort of talking about the history of yeah. organizational structures, where they came from, et cetera, for those original thinkers, the Taylors, the Max Weber's, the, those folks, um, that at the time they were exceptionally progressive in their thinking, right? They were trying to solve for some of humanity's bigger problems. You know, we've, we've harnessed energy. Now, how do, how do we build organizational structures and leadership models that can actually take advantage of it? And, um, we all, those of us that all of us really in today's age grew up inside of some sort of bureaucracy, if you're in a big organization, we love to point to the evils of it because it doesn't align very well as a standalone system with the way the world actually runs now. But uh, I'll be the first to tell people, look, if you like, uh, you, you know, antibiotics, then thank bureaucracy. <laughs> you know, if you <laughs> right, like right. <laughs> uh, the fact that stoplights work and we don't run into each other at intersections, thank bureaucracy. Like these things really do work well in certain ways. And so I, when, and the breaking down silos, um, sort of commentary is I like to frame that as let's connect silos. Silos serve some sort of purpose towards a, a more knowable end state. So I don't want to get rid of my R and D vertical. I don't want to get rid of my sales vertical, but I do want to connect those two silos. I want to connect my sales, you know, front edge thinkers and doers on the ground with my R&D long-term visionaries. Um, I don't want to create some scrum where they're all connected all the time because that just could be potentially madness. Right. I want them to do their, their, what they're experts at and be connected and thinking in a long solving complex problems that exist in the gap between those two verticals. And that's the hybrid structure that we try to uh, talk through in in one mission. Yeah. And there's some value in having that. I, I hear what you're saying. There's some value in having that silo, having that identity with that silo. I am part of this R&D team. There's something to be said about that connection with that um, kind of small uh, team of, of a large organization, right? But the, you, the challenge, it becomes a communication problem, right? I mean, almost all of these things stem from how do you effectively communicate without it turning into madness, as you said, right? And, right. and how do you flatten an organization without losing the identity of the individual um, tiger teams, if you will, right? Yeah. And I think some of it is just um, it, it's creating the awareness of the value of both of those ways mm. of thinking. Yeah. If we all understand that we can, it's easy to say on paper, like the value of <laughs> right. the, your your long term logistics planners um, versus the high speed dynamic change of your sales teams, etc. Um, and in a in, in a slower world, you know, go back fifty years, keeping them separated, keeping those silos distinct, with all the thinking happening up top was okay because everybody was doing it that way. Now the the value creation is in the those gaps that the bureaucracy alone is not created to to solve for. I think in the military it's 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 easier to see. So I'd always give the example of um and as an aviator yourself, you you would appreciate this. You could stand on the airfield at night in a combat zone and there's a team on one side of the airfield literally getting ready to hop on their aircraft and go conduct three missions in the next 12 hours. They only know basically 
plus or minus 80% what's going to happen on the first one. Second and third mission are going to be a, a completely adaptable sort of extension of that first mission, right? So that's high speed, constant change, et cetera. Now, on the other side of the airfield, a huge transport aircraft's about to land, and they're, the helicopters that are going to take them on that mission are going to get offloaded the back. You know, So on the left side of the airfield is long-term Gantt chart, logistics, that C-17 has a you know, multi-year maintenance plan. The helicopters in the, in the back have been tuned up by linear thinkers back home. But as soon as they roll off the back and they spin up, they become part of that adaptable system. The pilots that jump in them are ready to adapt in the moment. So the connection between those two systems is critical. I don't want to create chaos on the maintenance side, but I need individuals that can quickly transition into a complete adaptability-based environment if they're going to succeed. So you could really see it in the military. I think it's harder in industry for people to recognize the connection between those two because it's not as it's not as in your face constantly like it is on the battlefield. No, but it is. I think that's the, where the biggest opportunity. Uh, I love that analogy, but I think the biggest opportunity is uh, for organizations to get kind of uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable. I guess because I noticed when I've worked in this, and I worked for a large bureaucratic organization with seventeen thousand employees. And it was so stagnant because we tried to do everything like linear and logistically, like you said. There was none of the adaptability side of the house. At the expense of of ignoring, you know, I guess where I've been guilty in the past is is I almost wanted everybody to be adaptable, and that's not in your example you just gave. You need in certain aspects of the business that linear logic. You don't need chaos in, in when you're kind of putting the plane together, right? When you're putting the plane together, you need kind of a a, um, a linear progression to make sure it meets the certification requirements. But once it's put together and the plane's put into action, the people that are using that need to be kind of the adaptive mindset. I know I'm, I, that's kind of a simplistic way of, of thinking it. Am no, I, am but I, it's, I think it's exactly right. You know, as a if I'm a passenger on your aircraft, I like to think that somewhere – there are people with white gloves in a very sterile environment doing safety checks on that aircraft. <laughs> right. But I, I also want to know that when my my plane, but when the gate is full, you have a system in place to quickly adapt on the ground right. and make sure that I, I make my connection. So it's the con, it's the connectivity of those two sorts of systems. What we we in the in the development of leadership behaviors um, inside of our uh, team here at the McChrystal Group, uh, we have a whole research element that's focused on that. And they talked a lot about the tolerance of tension as a, a key leadership behavior in today's environment, where those that can develop a, not an ability to solve for, but an ability to recognize and deal with the, the natural tension that occurs between those two systems can be very successful. If the only thing you want to do is move fast and change plans, and if you always think you're a you know, a tactical SEAL platoon element <laughs> right. leader, well, that's, that's fine as long as you're only in that world. Right. If you only want to look at the world through sort of linear, long-term Gantt chart methodology, well, then that's going to get you in trouble. Right. If you exist in the space between, there's natural tension, but it's no longer a nice to have. If a, if, and this is all sort of anti-fragility thinking, et cetera, how traditional bureaucracies are, you know, top down, exceptionally stable and strong. 
left to right, if they shake, they're fragile. Right. And the complex problems shake bureaucracy and they can crumble on, under their own weight. So it's that tension between the different verticals and the connectivity that leaders have to drive that's the new challenge. Yeah, and getting comfortable with that tension, recognizing it for what it is, and then being comfortable with it, right? I mean, it, that, that, that's a part of the natural progression of being in this space, right? Exactly. And, yeah. there's, and this is the challenge our generation in particular faces because we're, we're moving in this direction whether we like it or not as right. collectively around the world. It's, it's being driven by the information age, right? That's why these new problems exist in the gaps, the connectivity that's at everyone's fingertips essentially. And we see that just attacking every big system. It's, it, obviously, it attacked us literally on the battlefield. It's attacking political systems. It's attacking economic structures, big business, et cetera. So that's what we have to solve for as a generation of leaders is – there's nothing in the old playbook, and th again, this is an attack on the tailors of the world, but they just they didn't have to think of leader development outside of the top-down, bottom-up mm -hmm. vertical structures, right? And so the onus is now on us to develop a new methodology for training ourselves as leaders to exist both in that top-down, bottom-up world, which is powerful, and connecting across boundaries from a very early age. Normally you didn't have to do that until you were the in the C-suite. Then you be or in the military until you were a general officer. That's why it's called a general officer because you become a generalist for the whole the whole service, right? right? And so you put away your Ranger beret and you put on the beret of the big military. Uh now you have to be that generalist thinker as a as a tactical unit commander if you're going to understand the nuances of how diplomacy works of how different intelligence agencies see the fight of how your the tribal leaders on the ground experience the fight from their side so you have to be a much more uh t-shaped leader from an earlier age and we have to solve for that yeah and it's and it's like what i'm picturing in my mind is that we have to be good at leaders at every level and the, and particularly the higher you get up in the, in the chain is that your job becomes more and more about maniacally communicating situation awareness in the big picture. It's like that almost becomes your full-time job because for the connectivity to, to work, that's what you have to focus on. And the more that you paint that big picture, the more decentralized decisions, the more autonomy that you can grant throughout the organization. Whereas when you're looking at an industrial model from 120 years ago, like Winslow Taylor was saying, it's like, it's our job to separate the, the leaders from the workers, the doers, and it's our job to come up with the find the perfect way. Well, now it's flipped on its head and you're saying, I don't know the perfect way, but I'm just going to try to communicate with you essentially what we're trying to accomplish and why in this ever constant changing dynamic environment. Is that right? Does that, does that make sense? What I said? It, it does. Um, and again, like, no evil people in this. Yeah, like no, to say, it's not uh, bureaucracy. That's right. We invented bureaucracy to, to, to keep the world from falling you know, apart, right? destroying itself. Right. right. And it worked really well. Um, not always perfect, um, but things I would argue things would have been a lot worse for the last 150 years had we not had systems like that in, in place. Um, now there are new, new dynamics, much like the tailors of the world that were solving for just the, the, the realities of the industrial transition. We've harnessed all this this power. We can create things. How do we how do we make it stable? We now have the new variable of the information age. So 
I can't possibly imagine that 15 years from now, all big systems are run the same way they were in 1992. We're, we're right. in the middle of this, this transition. And it's, it's going to be hard because we're breaking, you know, generations of organizational behavior from, you know, political leaders to CEOs to military leaders, et cetera. But that's, it's not a choice in my opinion. Like this, this is the, the call of our generation as leaders to figure this out. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to point out too, that the military hasn't, I mean, the military has by necessity, I mean, I think going through the last 16, 18, 17 years in Iraq and Afghanistan has brought a lot of that to the forefront. I mean, the Marine Corps did it a lot of times on, on smaller uh, levels out of necessity because of their, you know, 60 days insert me someplace for 60 days. Obviously you understood it from, from a SEAL team perspective, you know, insert me somewhere where decentralized decision-making was the rule of the day. But I, I think if I understand correctly, your experience or what we've experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last decade and a half, I mean, really brought this to the forefront, right? I mean, because we were dealing with such small individual, um, chaotic environments on the other side. And, and again, I don't pretend to be a military strategist, but it just, that's what is speaking out to me. Talk to me a little bit about that experience that what you saw firsthand, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I think the, I mean, I, I was I was on the receiving end as a more junior person um, when our senior leadership, starting with Sam McChrystal, and then and then he started to build a contingent of senior leaders that were willing to look at the battlefield in a different fashion, right? And then uh, I was able to see this up close when I, I spent a year um, as McChrystal's aide, his last his last year running a global task force that was specifically focused on counterterrorism. So I got as a ju relatively junior member of the team was sort of seeing behind the curtain. Uh, so that was my, my personal experience on this, but on the, on the front edge of the transformation, I think one of the key frustrations was what we see in industry as well, where you go, if you're in a successful organization, if you go far enough down towards where the action happens, you'll find this sort of behavior. Uh, it exists everywhere. Your, your best sales team, your best right. marketing group, your R and D folks, et cetera. And your SEAL platoon or your Ranger element or, your, you know, those that are in the fight uh, and they're small enough to operate as a high performance team. This is their natural behavior, right? They, they share ideas. They adapt very quickly in the environment. Otherwise, they're not going to survive. They're not going to be a good sales team, right? The problem is when you it, historically go back 30 years, you could have those really high performance teams close to the issue, and then the big structure above it that kind of tells them what to do, and they move them around like chess pieces. Well, now that connectivity that exists on the small team has to exist between the silos, as we were talking about earlier. Right. What we started to uh, experience, the first frustration that was really going around the force was, how can our small teams on the ground be so good? And they're really capable, especially relative to the fight that we faced. They weren't losing in the moment. On scale, we were not getting ahead of the problem. We were watching the Al-Qaeda threat grow exponentially as all of our small teams are succeeding day after day after day on the battlefield. So that tension was just massive. Like, how, how is this how not is possible? working? Yeah, right. Because we know we're way more capable. And we know it's all the same people. Like our senior officers, they were Ranger platoon commanders right. at some point just a few years ago. And now we can't seem to keep it together at this at the at the global level, um, but that's because we never have to. And I would say the pass that everyone deserves right now is 
look, if you're the CEO of a global enterprise, your, your predecessors, they didn't have to lead like you have to lead. So there, a lot of their lessons should be learned, but you also have to extend the thinking. They didn't have to connect those verticals. They might have talked about it, but it wasn't a mandate the way it is in the information age. So you really do have to thoughtfully consider how you communicate, how you foster that depth of relationship between those different verticals so that people multiple layers below you are able to cross those siloed boundaries in a way that you didn't have to as a junior leader coming up the ranks. Your vertical expertise was enough to get you into the the C-suite. But if that's how you're running your organization, the complex issues that exist between those silos is what's going to kill you. And we're seeing it, you know, we see it everywhere now. So that's the that's why it's hard uh, for senior leaders and for all of us because it's a new muscle. So is it just commanders intent on steroids every single day, every moment of, of your waking moment as you're a senior leader? Is, is that what it is? Well, it's interesting. So uh, for the uh, – a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the commander's intent idea, but that's a way of – it's a military uh, way of saying giving very clear guidance and guardrails that you can hand out almost literally sometimes to your junior officers and they know the boundaries that they your your intent is here's what we're trying to accomplish i'll frame that inside of the broader strategy and here's the lanes that i want you to operate inside of and everything else you can take as sort of independence right and so good commanders do that really well and good perform high performance teams on the ground execute inside of those boundaries exceptionally well so that's sort of the theory of the case of the whole special operations community um, historically scaling that up um, what we ended up inside of the, the task force that McChrystal was running uh, through sort of the f- a, a forced fun based on how quickly our environment was changing. <laughs> um, there's a whole history to this. But we ended up living on these 24-hour cycles, seven days a week, where the first 90 minutes of every 24 hours consisted of a global video teleconference that would have seven or 8,000 people on one single net. And then we had 22 hours, 22 and a half hours of – of decentralized authorities. So we, we synchronized ourselves and then we decentralized and empowered teams on the ground to operate with real speed and autonomy because they had an understanding based on the, the synchronization windows of what mattered in the moment, what we were trying to accomplish. So in t- And we, it took years to build to that and there was a whole structure behind it that we go into in, in one mission. But in time, that global enterprise of you know, 20 plus thousand people started to feel like a high performance, small team. That was was sort of the tip of the iceberg. But the key is in those, those forums of synchronization, what we called our operations and intelligence update, where there's thousands of people on one net, that was not a daily review of commander's intent. So it wasn't our senior leaders every day saying, okay, we're back together here's what you did, here's what I liked right. about or didn't like, and here's what you're going to do next, and you're going to do next, et cetera. Because you just could not have done it like that. They, I mean, they could have if they chose, but it would not have helped solve for the issue. What that became in time was a conversation between those different silos. So leaders way, way down into the ranks, connecting across verticals with the senior leadership acting as a conduit to allow for that conversation but not dictating or mandating it. So you as the general officer are there and I'm talking really through you about things that I know matter to those other silos. I want you to understand how I'm seeing the battlefield and this current 
issue I'm seeing, and I want to understand your perspective. We're going to do this as a, a conversation that's being hosted by our senior leadership, but we're really talking to each other. And that's how that connectivity started to evolve. So it's a top-down commander's intent sort of structure would look pretty, but it really wouldn't solve for the issue. Yeah, what I'm picturing in my mind is you know, someone sitting in the middle, almost in the middle of a globe, and kind of facilitating all of that connectivity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the way we uh, the way we outline it, um, I'm a very visual guy, but um, the way I mapped it out in this the the last book that came out was imagine a because there's a lot of discussion now. Um, is bureaucracy dead, or is it eventually going to figure itself out, or should we go to completely decentralized sort of leaderless models? Pod approach, etc. I mean, so there's this very binary discussion between old and new. I would envision um, for your listeners, you know, imagine your traditional org chart, which all of us are familiar with. You probably have one in, on your wall in your office from CEO all the way down. We had that version of military. Then imagine a network model where you have individual nodes and that can be that can be people or teams that are connected in a very sort of random and constantly changing pattern. Um, your, your personal friend network, your social network on Facebook, whatever the case may be. Networks operate in a much different way. If anything, though, they're good at adapting because they don't have central controls. They just react to the environment. Now take those two images and layer them on top of each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I would argue that's what right looks like, at least in this transition period for the next 10 to 15 years. Capture the strength of that traditional bureaucracy and all the linear functions that we were talking about earlier, but then create a, a, a communication and cultural ecosystem that allows networks to really take hold and be leveraged towards solving the mission at multiple levels of the organization. So that bureaucracy is going to be relatively static because it's designed to do that. Right. The network will be changing if you get the communication structure right. The networks inside of that will change faster than your problems. Right. Right. And 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 that goes back to my point that this becomes, I mean, you have to be a communication expert. It's all about the particular the higher you get up, it's all about the communication. And you still have to somehow and I go back to that word maniacally, communicate what it is you're trying to accomplish and why. You can't lose sight of that. Otherwise, it turns into madness, right? It, otherwise, it turns in. You, somehow, you have to have those autonomous groups understanding the big picture. The situa situational awareness factor of all this has to be amplified at every level, right? I mean, I, I just can't see it any other way. Yeah. Um, the, you do have to be a bit maniacal. Uh, and one of the what, one of the challenges comes, and and again, I have great empathy for for any senior leader in big organizations these days that are wrestling with this because no one's this is all new thinking, right? So right. if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and suddenly you're talking to 3,000 people in your organization, I would do the same thing. You're going to default to what you're good at, which is, well, here's where we are as a business. Here's what I need you to do, and you do you do you know a very transactional sort of approach, right? Um, what I think is the art of leadership in, in today's environment and the real, the real challenge is the willingness to create a space where you admit uh, that you can't do that anymore. 
I can't, you can't centrally control and top-down mandate everything that's going to happen. It's impossible. What, yeah. It's impossible because the problems are just moving too fast. Too fa- yeah. And so what you can do as a senior leader is create that ecosystem and protect it. And then your, your tone and conversation and the environment you create when you're resynchronizing the force, for us that was daily for most of the organizations that we've worked with. It's sort of a, a weekly or, or twice a month sort of cadence that they end up getting on. But leaders need to come in that environment. And just what I call in one mission, the aligning narrative. So tell the story, constantly re- reiterate yeah, exactly. what the story is that everyone's aligned against. Mm-hmm. And then if they all have that vision in mind and they're constantly hearing it from their leadership, then they can solve problems between themselves in a decentralized yeah. fashion in a way that aligns with your intent for the organization. They know the story. And so they're solving toward that as a collective. That's where the network power can come into play, but the leaders need to set the tone. Absolutely. I love that you said that. You're absolutely right. I mean, telling the story, the narrative of what's going on and why is so critical for that senior leadership. I mean, that is at the heart of it all. I mean, that makes perfect sense what you said. I love that you said that in the way that you said it too. It's interesting though that that, um, despite this kind of radical – or what's happening, the reality of what's happening uh, to be successful in this type of environment, you still have to – it emphasizes more more importantly what was standing out is that you've got to get the behaviors right. You've got to get the leadership behaviors right. And that's old school, man. You cannot escape from those tried and true tested principles, those leadership principles that just exist that nobody invented. You, you have to get those behaviors right because if you don't have those right at the senior leadership, it's all going to fall apart too. What do you What do you think when you hear that? No, it's it's – it's absolutely right, um, but it's it's scary. There's risk there <laughs> for risk. a senior leader to walk into an environment. And look, if you buy this theory of the case, essentially what I'm saying is you can't know it all. You can't keep up with the pace of change. Absolutely. It's just hu- it's humanly impossible. impossible. Yep. And if you're if you're slowing things down enough so that when you walk into the meeting, you look like the you know the brilliant senior executive or the brilliant general officer then you've necessarily gotten your organization behind exactly. the rate of change on the ground. You, you're starting to stagnate and become mediocre at that moment. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's not happening, if you can run your system the old way, well, then you're, you're in a different sort of domain than most of us. And it's probably not time to change, right? I would argue eventually it's going to hit you pretty hard. And if, if you're not seeing it yet, it, it might be just you're keeping your head in the ground. But most of us, the vast majority are in that, that other space. And so the risk for a senior leadership comes at a very deep and personal level, which is I need to have the willingness to walk in and say, here's what I'm accountable for and know. And I have this pretty wired as a senior leadership. And a lot of that's going to be inside of that traditional bureaucratic model. That's still important. I'm accountable to this whole system, but I am I'm watching closely these slower moving, linear, long-term sort of thinking that happens inside of our traditional structure. Then I'm going to create the space and demonstrate the the vulnerability to say the connectivity between these networks, that's moving faster than we are right now. So I, I need to, to remind everyone of how those verticals should be connected, admit what I don't know in that space or what I can't solve for fast enough and empower you on the ground to do that. I will hold you accountable for errors or things you choose not to do because you acted like you didn't see the problem and we're going to resynchronize around that. So if this isn't a this is not a non-accountability model. Right. In fact, for us the accountability went up exponentially because there's so much transparency in the system. 
But it wouldn't have happened if our senior leadership hadn't stepped into that environment and said, hey, here's what I'm rigid on because I understand how we uh, you know, train and recruit and spend dollars, et cetera. Here's what I, what I need you on the ground to take lead on. I'll create the space for that to happen, but ultimately it's up to you to connect. I love it. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I think it goes back to, again, things as leaders that we're really not all that good at, but I think it's critical for this to be successful. You have to be authentic. You have to be vulnerable and you have to be courageous. In other words, I mean, courage is, is kind of a given, but I mean, courageous in the sense that you have to be willing to walk in there with that authentic, authenticity and vulnerability and have the courage to say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to suspend the belief in how we're going to get there. I just know we're going to get there because I'm empowering you and by the way, here's the grander vision, in, in, and I'll become this communicator, the storyteller of what we're trying to accomplish and why. I know that's yeah. how I see it. No, and I, and, and I don't think courage is an overstatement. Um, it's, it takes less courage as a senior leader, and I was guilty of this in my military career, even though I, I got to sort of a mid-career level. Um, when uncertain, you can default to just, well, beat up your staff and right. get all the facts right. And then you'll, you'll look like, you know, everything, um, that's comfortable. That's that you can feel like sort of the, you know, the, I'm at the top of the org chart sort of, sort of leader, but that's not really courageous. That's just, you know, abuse of staff and, <laughs> and short term kidding yourself, yeah, right? Kidding yourself. Yeah. The, one of the, I've told the story before, but one of the, one of the moments early in my career, what I, that always sticks with me. And I remember seeing this and having a personal epiphany on what was happening at the leadership level was, uh, as an aviator, you'd appreciate this. So one of the assets that we were hyper aware of its positioning on the battlefield was our, our rotary wing lift our helicopters, because you couldn't go do missions if you didn't have helicopters. Right. right. And there was, that was a finite resource. There were more operators than, than, than there was lift. And so even as a junior officer, I could have told you where literally down to the, to the LZ it was on where every one of our helicopter was in two different theaters because you're always fighting for those. And so in one of these global sinks, uh, one day I remember watching with crystal, uh, ask someone mentioned a shifting helicopter from A to B and he asked, well, how many helicopters are in theater right now? And I remember thinking, how does he not know? Everybody knows that. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's like what I first thing I look at in the morning because it dictates my next 24 hours. And then I paused and thought, oh, my God, like we've just seen a whole new type of leadership. He's willing to t tell thousands of people, hey, I'm thinking about more important things than where the helicopters are. And watch, I'll ask the question. I'll get the answer and we'll solve this issue in two seconds. Now, on the inverse, he could have had a 30-minute pre-brief every single day to make it look like he's a genius when it comes to assets. But what he's not doing at that time is thinking up and out, talking with other global leaders and making sure that we're actually winning the war. So he was willing to show, hey, I'm not smart right now about where the helicopters are. Somebody give me that answer. And it was just a perfect demonstration yeah. of the type of exposure will, senior leaders need to be willing to accept and say, look, that's not my job. And um, I'm not going to delay us by trying to get smart. I'm going to solve it right now. And I expect you, every layer of this organization, to demonstrate the same vulnerability to the folks underneath them. That's a great observation, a subtle one, but very I, I That's a great story. I mean, what a subtle but very powerful demonstration of, of right, of vulnerability. 
Because I yeah. think when we get in those roles, you're absolutely right. I think, and I think where I've seen a lot of senior leaders struggle, and I know I've, I've done this time and time again in my leadership roles, where I felt like I had to have all the answers and that people would look at it as a weakness if, if I didn't, when the exact opposite actually happens. When you stand there confidently in an uncomposed manner saying, I, I don't know the answer to this, you know, tell, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of good can come out of that. I mean, a lot of well, and it, that's why I like that sort of hybrid structure between bureaucracy and network. When those two are combined, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's there's always a gray area in here. Sure. But what what I just said was not it's not a pass to say, hey, the new model of leadership is um, I tell a bunch of stories and then I kind of don't know anything. Right. <laughs> right. Everybody go solve yeah, for it. Right. right? Um, that's silly and dangerous. Right. right. Um, so if you're observing a senior leader, if they're saying. I don't know answers inside of that bureaucratic, more static structure. Well, then that's a gap you need to fill, right? If you don't understand how um, your budget cycle works or how you your sales contracts are structured or things that don't change that fast, like, no, you should know that. Like, you, you, you're senior enough in the organization. Um, but should you know the realist raw time data that's impacting that sales? No, you can ask open-ended questions there. You can learn in the moment. But most importantly, you want to connect people that can solve for that issue. So it, it's not a pass to just say, uh, just be big and charismatic and let everything else fall right, out. Right, that's, yeah. But that's looking good. at it through that dual hybrid structure gives, I think, a roadmap to say, okay, here are the things I need to be really tight on, and here's where I need to create that space for others to get engaged. Yeah, it's kind of like in the in the aviation community, it's like the difference between or really effective aircraft commanders I mean, it's a given that I'm tech, technically and tactically proficient in my weapon system, right? I mean, but if if somebody asks me, you know, what voltage, you know, controls the J valve in, in the left fuel tank, I mean, I don't know. I don't care because I can't control it from here, but I can find somebody that can give me that answer, right? And I think it's wasted time, energy, and space if I did know that. That's kind of nice to know stuff and kind of shows you how, I guess, how smart you are. But really, I... I to your point, I mean, I'm going to know, you know, how to to fly this airplane in every condition. If I lose an engine dungeon on fire, that's a given, right? You should expect right. that from me. But yeah, if but if you botch a landing, it doesn't make it okay that you own up to it and you're very vulnerable about screwing up the landing. Right? That's, <laughs> right. that's your job. Like that's you need job. to be good at that. Yeah, I can't make fatal mistakes, right? It's like it's like, well, right. I I ran out of gas because I was spending my time telling the big picture what we're trying to do to my co You know what I mean? Yeah, you got to right, know right. your job. But yep. Say, Saying my bad in that situation doesn't make it okay. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I love this stuff, man. I could geek out on this all day. This has been a totally geeky conversation for me, and, and the, but I, I, I just, I'm fascinated by this. I could talk to you for two, two to three hours on this. Talk about the books. I mean, talk about a little bit about the Crystal Group as we're wrapping up here. I mean, wh- what are the exciting things that you're working on? Who are the exciting people you're working with? What's next with you and the McChrystal Group? Yeah, so the group's been a lot of fun. I left the service in 2012 after about 15 years of active duty. Um, I had gotten to know Stan McChrystal very well um, when I worked for him. We just kept in touch over the years. So the McChrystal Group, he'd established it about uh, a year prior, was just getting off the the ground. Um, I came over in the summer of 12. There were maybe 15 people in the building, and we've now – grown steadily over the years where we probably have 85 folks or so, um, a, a mixed, really fun group of folks from about half are former military or government service of some, 
uh, some vein. The other half, just brilliant folks from out of industry, young hires out of out of schools. Uh, so we we blend this really eclectic mix of of folks that are very thoughtful and interested in this sort of sort of stuff. Um, we we work most of our work is t- small teams that are heavily embedded inside of big organizations for you know years, twelve months, eighteen months, thirty six months helping them go through a similar transformation. Um, the other part of our organization is our leadership institute that does a lot of the leader training and development that embeds inside of those projects. Um, so when you can get those two things moving in tandem, you can really drive significant change and, and just lock the whole system into the DNA of the of the organization. Um, and then the, the books, we wrote Team of Teams about uh, almost three years ago now. And then uh, one mission came out last summer as a as a follow up to that team of teams being sort of the big theory of the case, yep. what the changes we went through, and then one mission meant to be more of a uh, a guidebook almost to what works, what systems should you be thinking about changing, how the decentralization of, of decision making really really plays out, and then Stan McChrystal is working uh, on a third book with. Another SEAL who runs our Leadership Institute, a guy named Jeff Eggers, who I work closely with in the community, uh, that will be out in the fall. And it's a uh, sort of the third in a trilogy. It's focused heavily on the leader as an individual, what behaviors have worked historically um, to successfully and throughout time to to create leaders that are that are comfortable in that that sort of tension between strict top-down behavior and then creating relationship-based organizations, um, which will be an exciting sort of wrap-up to the trilogy. Absolutely. man. with those three books, Team of Teams, One Mission, and with this new one coming out, it's it's almost like you you don't need anything else in your bookshelf, it seems like, you know, because (laughs) a team of teams has become a go-to for me. I use it a lot, even, you know, consulting with my clients and when we talk about it. And One Mission is just as good. I'm getting through that. It's it's definitely going to become a go-to for me as well. So I look forward to the behavior side of it for this third one coming out. I love what you guys are doing at McChrystal Group. I'm a big fan of McChrystal. Uh, and of course, I'm a fan of, uh, of you now. I'm so glad to have you in, in the circle. How, how can people reach out to you and get more connected with you and the McChrystal Group? The easiest way is just hop online. Our, our website is uh, mccrystalgroup.com. It's pretty self-explanatory about the work we're doing, sort of our, our ideas. Um, and if they, if they want to chat at all, it's easy to ping us through that, that outlet. Man, I can't believe that it's almost 45 minutes into this conversation, and um, that's usually longer than, than most. And I could talk to you. There's a whole list of things. I did. I wanted to talk to you about kind of the United Airlines thing that happened over the summer. <laughs> um, there's so many things we get to talk about. But, man, I, we've got a lot of chock full of great nuggets and, like I said, a lot of leadership geekdom in this call. So I really appreciate you coming on the show, Chris. I look forward to, to having you back on and, and staying in touch with you. No, thanks. Great discussion. I'm the same way. My wife reminds me after after you write a book, you can talk a long time about things that people might not care about. So <laughs> 45 minutes is probably a good, uh, good cap. So yeah. thank you. All right, man. Have a great holiday and uh, we'll talk soon. You as well. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Go to richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com and fill out the contact page and reach out to me. Let me know where you're at your leadership journey. Also, if you want access to my brand new online leadership course to help become a better leader, go to legacyleaderblueprint.com. Fill out your email and you gain access to a free 12-minute video that will reveal the top secrets of leadership and also show you how you can gain access, exclusive access, to my online leadership course. That's LegacyLeaderBlueprint.com. Hope to see you on the inside. Thanks for tuning into the show.